stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Later in this hour, we're going to talk about a, a federal program that's meant to help green your home. It's called the Greener Home Grant. We're going to hear from one expert, one consultant, who says that this program is confusing in how it works and that in a lot of ways it's actually not fair to Alberta homeowners. So we'll find out more about that coming up after 1.30. If you've heard about this uh, program or maybe had some questions, we'll try to sort some of this out. Um, Stephen Farrell with EnergyExperts.ca is going to join us coming up after 1.30. Uh, plenty more still to get to in the program here this afternoon. Now we'll have more time for your calls. Your text is mentioned here, 403-974-8255, as we roll along here on a Wednesday afternoon. Now we touched on this yesterday, uh, serial killer and rapist Paul Bernardo. Uh, once again, had the opportunity to uh, apply for parole. Now, fortunately, the uh, right decision was made. Common sense did indeed prevail. Uh, Paul Bernardo has been denied parole for a second time. And not the last time, or at least not the last time he's going to ask. The problem is, when he does, we, we don't really know how it's going to go. There are no guarantees. And so for now, I suppose, we can go back to to ignoring Paul Bernardo. He's back in prison where he belongs. But uh, this will continue. He'll have future opportunities to apply for parole, and it's certainly possible at some point maybe he'll he'll convince some parole officers. He'll convince the board that that it's time. So this is all incredibly difficult for the families of the victims, just that uncertainty knowing that this monster could one day uh, get some taste of freedom. And having to, to you know, be aware of all of this, monitor all of this. What's the latest developments? What's the next date? Has he made the request? And then when this happens, as it did two years ago, did this week, to have to go to listen to all of this and relive all of this pain in explaining to the parole boards you know, the impact that Paul Bernardo's horrific crimes had on their lives. So, yes, common sense prevailed, but let's not, you know, let's not underscore just how difficult this is for the families of the victims. Somebody who's been uh, very close to this uh, story for a very long time is uh, Tim Danson. He's uh, the lawyer who's represented the families of Kristen French and uh, Leslie Mahaffey throughout this this whole ordeal. And with these parole applications, it's an ordeal that really is, is not over. Tim, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Uh, so your thoughts going in, I mean, it, it took about an hour to come to a decision, but to, to what extent is there that, that, that nervousness or uncertainty uh, around these things? Well, um, first of all, I mean, the whole experience for the family is, is, is gut-wrenching. Um, yeah. There's no better way of expressing it. There's just an enormous sense of anguish and despair and sadness because it, it makes them relive the horrors of some 30 years ago. Um, and, um, you know, I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, um, we don't take anything for granted. Uh, we are not complacent. Um, there's always the possibility that um, uh, people in the corrections parole system could see things different from us. I mean, they're obviously committed to the view of, uh, of rehabilitation uh, across the board. Um, their funding is based on that as well. And... Uh, 
and so we're we're always concerned um and so the family does make uh, a, a very strenuous effort in putting their their victim impact statements uh, together and obviously trying to uh, impact the outcome of the hearings we've had two now uh, they're relieved that we've been successful but we don't know what the future is i mean one of the arguments that bernardo has put forward his lawyer put forward is is what this concept um uh, that i find rather repugnant of quote unquote aging out that as he gets he's 56 now but as he gets older they they all of a sudden think that he's no longer dangerous and that's simply uh, not borne out by uh, the scientific evidence um and you know the fact that I think most Canadians don't really appreciate this. Paul Bernardo, so we, he, we, we've now had a second hearing uh, yesterday. Um, he can apply for parole in one year from now, okay. uh, a further uh, parole review. The law then requires the parole board to have that hearing within six months. So theoretically, um, you know, the families could be put through this every year and a half um, uh, uh, as long as Bernardo's alive. Uh, that's cruel, uh, and the only reason why in this particular case it was two years and eight months is because it, it, it's timed by his own uh, his timing of bringing his application, and then he he postponed it himself. But otherwise, you know, it's every year and a half. As, as a rule of thumb, it comes out to be every two years, um, and I think it's very important that we we understand that. Uh, we must treat people like Paul Bernardo, people convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment, and then in his case, additionally, a dangerous offender, yeah. um, uh, be, be treated differently by the overwhelming majority of offenders who have fixed sentences. And our view is that, um, uh, you know, that, that he should not be entitled to uh, uh, a, a further parole hearing for some five, seven, ten years, uh, whatever the number is ultimately uh, people can agree on. Uh, but um, for these particular kinds of offenders, we know there's no cure for psychopathy. Um, you know, in, in his case, the, 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 um, uh, the medical diagnosis uh, is that of uh, sexual sadism, voyeurism. You know, he's narcissistic. He's a psychopath. These aren't my words. These are the, the findings of medical experts, and there's no cure for that. And what we saw yesterday was, in my view, uh, appalling. Uh, this was nothing other than an exercise of entertainment for him. He had a long, long kind of speech uh, prepared presentation as if he was some kind of, uh, you know, Harvard professor. Uh, and he, it was just a rant. And, um, and, and, you know, we have a case before the court that we argued in, in the federal court in, in uh, the end of February. It's under reserve. Um, you know, one of the things we, we, we have asked for is things such as the audio recording of the, this public parole hearing be made public. The public has a right to hear what those of us who were at the hearing heard. Um, this guy talks about the most unspeakable crimes that he committed against my clients as if normal people were talking about the weather. It, it, it's breathtaking to actually hear him um, for those of us who also got to see him, um, this, this, he is a psychopath. Psychopaths are incapable of humanity. They're incapable of empathy. Uh, and uh, we also learned that he had done absolutely nothing to improve himself, not that he could. 
uh, but not even made an attempt since his last parole hearing. So in that sense, this was a complete waste of time. All it did was cause tremendous agony to my clients for no good reason, and the law just needs to be changed to prevent this kind of abuse and revictimization of, uh, of, of people like the French and Mahaffey okay. family and the other uh, victims of, of, of uh, Paul Bernardo. He even had the gall at one point to describe his situation, and, and this is somebody who is, is guilty of some of the most horrific crimes uh, that, that we know of, right? That he described his own imprisonment as cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, I mean, that was stunning, to, uh, quite frankly. For, I mean, the, the crimes that he committed, for me, it resonates in a, in a, in a, in a more deep way, only because, unfortunately, uh, um, I have uh, uh, viewed the videotapes. Thank God, after all appeal routes were extinguished, uh, we, I got a court order to destroy those videotapes and autopsy pictures and crime scene pictures, so all that stuff no longer exists, which gives some peace to the family that their daughters can't be violated again. But yeah. coming from my perspective, having seen this and just seen the unspeakable uh, crimes uh, that he committed um, uh, against these defenseless uh, teenage girls, for him to talk about that he is now being subject to cruel and unusual punishment, because he called it solitary confinement, in fact, it's protective custody, um, was was breathtaking, and uh, and that he 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 wanted out of what he as the solitary confinement, and and I'm not trying to be glib about this, but you know my my answer to that, um, you know, Mr. Bernardo, if you feel being in solitary confinement or more appropriately protective custody is cruel and unusual punishment, I can assure you that the families will support you. Uh, in trans- being transferred into the general prison population. Let's see how you integrate with them. And perhaps for someone who wants to be paroled within the general community, and by the way, he, he wants to be paroled in, uh, in British Columbia, um, uh, let's see how he integrates with the general prison population before we integrate him with, uh, with, with, with uh, law-abiding Canadians. Um, the thought that, you know, when he says, you know, let me, you know, go to a halfway house in Kelowna, B.C., because I'll be thousands of miles away from my victims in Ontario, again, he just doesn't get it. He's, um, what parole's all about is protecting the public against dangerous people like him. Yeah. So whether he's in Ontario or British Columbia or anywhere else in Canada, he represents a, 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 a very dangerous uh, threat to public safety. He does. And people should remember, he's only 56 years old. This isn't somebody you know, in, in their 80s or, or something like that. So I, I think in, in a lot of ways, as you say, he's definitely very much still a threat. There, there was something very poignant that, that Donna French said yesterday because... It's theoretically possible at some point, maybe it's in 10 or 20 or maybe it's 30 years, but at some point, Paul Bernardo's life sentence might end. But as, as Donna put it yesterday, theirs never does. The, the pain is a life sentence, and they have no way of bringing it to an end. And, and I thought well, that, that was just so incredibly powerful to put it that way. Yeah, she 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 really did, and it was powerful. Um, and uh, uh, you know, my own view is, if I was on your show as an independent uh, legal expert, I'd I'd say that I think the chances of Paul Bernardo uh, ever getting paroled is somewhere between zero and nil. Uh, I think he will be like Clifford Olson um, and Picton and those those offenders. Um, they, they they just won't get out. However, when you're the lawyer uh, for them. Uh, you, you just can't take anything for granted. Um, we're not complacent, and I think at the at the outset of your show, you 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 as I said, you hit the nail on the head. We don't know 
and um, so you know our guard will always be up, um, and and hopefully um, you know he'll never get out. I mean, you know the trial judge who ended up becoming the chief justice of Ontario and considered to be one of the most um, respected. Uh, and experienced uh, judges in the country. Uh, after he declared um, uh, uh, Paul Bernardo uh, a dangerous offender, he turned to Bernardo and he said, and I quote, uh, Mr. Bernardo, you have no right ever to be released. The behavioral restraints that you require is jail. You require it, in my view, for the rest of your natural life. You are a sexually sadistic psychopath. Um, you know, these are the words, as I say, by one of the most respected and distinguished judges in the country. Um, and, you know, hopefully the parole board will continue to um, uh, take that view. Um, and I do believe that, you know, because parole hearings are public, uh, and that Paul Bernardo is representing a uh, is, is requesting a public remedy that is to be relieved from the full consequences of his actions and, and life sentence, and to be re- reintegrated into the community. That parole hearing should be as transparent as the rest of uh, the justice system, criminal or civil. And um, and we have made a, a an access to information request, which was denied. That's why we were in the federal court. Um, that the public has a right to see the the medical reports, the documentation that Bernardo relies upon. Um, again, if this was in the the the, the uh, criminal trial, the public would have access to it. That shouldn't change, so that the public can hold the parole board itself accountable, as we hold judges in our regular system accountable. And uh, that, as I say, that decision's on, on reserve. We'll see what, what the courts say with respect to that. But um, as I said earlier, uh, the public really should have access to the uh, audio recording of what happened yesterday and, and hear Bernardo's tone of voice, which is chilling. Uh, as I said, he, he talked about the unspeakable crimes uh, against my client, like we would talk about the weather, and you really can't capture the, uh, the extent of his evilness unless you actually hear his own voice. Among as many crimes, of course, uh, at least over a dozen rapes that, that we know of. We probably don't know the true number. Many of those involved, uh, you know, teenage girls. Um, and, and I heard you mention this yesterday, that, that in, in the lead up to this second parole hearing, you, you've, as I understand, been, been hearing from a, a number of those victims. They've been coming forward to contact you. Uh, yeah, I was only surprised by that because it didn't happen uh, at his first parole hearing. But for some reason, um, uh, many of these of the of his other rape victims, um, you know, reached out uh, to me to to talk. Um, only one, in the end, uh, gave a victim impact statement. Um, but it is gut wrenching too because um, you you listen to these uh, these were teenage girls or young twenties when it occurred, and here we are, some twenty eight years later. And their lives have been just turned upside down, and 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 they have experienced such hardship. So the you know the extent of of of, of his crimes uh, is, is so extensive that um, it, you know again uh, you know when he talks about that he's been rehabilitated, uh, I mean it's just uh, it's delusional. The cognitive distortions in this guy's head are are, are frightening. Um, 
and and as and I just I just hope that uh, there'll never be a time when a parole board will be um, uh, duped into thinking that he's rehabilitated. You know, one of the the points that was made by both um, uh, Donna French and uh, Debbie Mahaffey yesterday uh, is is to re- remember uh, to remind the board that one of the hallmarks and trademarks of a psychopath is that they're bright, they can be charming, they're manipulative, they're deceptive. Um, uh, you know, and I think Bernardo tried to do all of that and, and failed, and we certainly alerted to the board, don't be fooled by him using, you know, the words that he thinks you, the pro board, want to hear, uh, because it's, it's, it's hollow. And, 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 and they so did. Well, I'm looking forward to their full reasons. Um, but um, uh, this, this is an, an individual who um, should never be let out of jail. And I really do urge the public, on behalf of the families, to, to write to the members of Parliament uh, that we must change the, the parole eligibility rules for people convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life. Life means life. I mean, people need to understand that. Life means life. There, there, there's just parole eligibility um, you know, uh, available to them. Uh, but they should not be able to to do it with the regularity that the law currently permits. Indeed. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Tim, I really appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks so much for this. Right. Thank you very much. All the best. Uh, that is Tim Danson, a longtime lawyer for the uh, French and Mahaffey families, and so a great overview of you know everything the families have been going through. But what happened yesterday, Paul Bernardo, in a lot of ways, showing his true colors. It's still who he is and probably always will be. Big legal change that occurred in Canada yesterday as the Senate has now officially passed Bill C-218, which removes from the Criminal Code of Canada the crime of betting on a sports event. Now, you might actually think that 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 already was legal. I mean, obviously, a lot of Canadians engage in this practice, either with offshore betting sites, you know, underneath the table, so to speak, with friends, or through things like Sports Select. And it was always a weird quirk in our law where parlay betting was legal if you bet on multiple sports events, but betting on a single sporting event was technically a crime. So in order to allow for that practice to be regulated by the provinces who are responsible for gaming in Canada, uh, that needed to be removed from the Criminal Code of Canada. And we've come close to doing it before, but uh, either vote went the other way or time ran out or, or something sidelined it. But yesterday it actually happened. So what what has changed? I think the whole you know culture around this has changed. The uh, position of major sports leagues has changed. So things are really different today than than in previous t- attempts to do this. So joining us to talk about the significance uh, of this decision and what it all means in practice here in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon Paul Burns, who's president of the Canadian Gaming Association, uh, gaming our Canadian Gaming Paul, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is uh, this is a big day. Obviously, a big change. What? Why did it happen this time, and why did we come up so short in in the past? Do you think? Well, I think that um, this time there was a, there was one major difference, and that was the professional sports leagues in North America um, were supporting the legislation. They wanted to see it happen. Um, previous attempts, they were on the other side. Um, the other side is really just the fact that that we've seen 
We've had three years of, of watching sports betting grow across the United States since they struck down their federal prohibition. Um, and, and it's obviously the awareness is higher uh, amongst sports fans and sports bettors. Uh, but the leagues were really the big difference this time. Yeah, I think that that was uh, that was certainly important because when you got you know the NHL especially so influential here when you got the NHL lobbying politicians don't do this don't do this that that carries a lot of weight so they've done a 180 on this and uh, I think we see the end result here so uh, we this have is big. And, and yeah Commissioner of the CFL was in front of the committee as well talking about the importance to the future of the CFL and what it means for them and, and uh, you know the Canadian Premier League Canadian Elite Basketball mm-hmm. League all these Canadian leagues are we're all there with the, the larger north american wide leagues as well right because i think they've started to see that i mean this they can benefit from this this can be good for them well it is and, and frankly for professional sports it's people have been betting on their product except they don't really haven't right. seen the benefits of that so it's a bit of protecting their intellectual property at the same time um but they know it can their fans are engaged their fans like to bet on sports uh, it's it's an element for not all of their fans, but for some, and and they wanted to uh, be able to control how it's done and what's bet on, and and have a greater say in in controlling what the the image of their product as well as seeking the economic benefits from it as as best they can. Yeah, and and I think we see that as well in Canada. I mean, you know, with Brian Massey in Windsor, he's he's long pushed for this, and they see it firsthand. Where you know there's. Canadians who just go across the, the border to Detroit and, you know, to, to have that going the other way, being being able to bring some of that traffic to, to the casino in Windsor. There's real economic opportunities there. But let's talk a bit about what this means now, because like in the U.S., where the states get to regulate um, these things, that that's the case in Canada. It falls to the provinces. So how is this going to start to manifest itself in Canada? Do you think? Well, it's going to it's one, I think it will start fairly quickly because there are no legislative issues left to deal with. It's regulation that can be done uh, by governments without le- legislative changes. So that's the plus. So it'll be a matter of weeks uh, before Canadians will really start to be able to see the difference in, in sports betting offerings here. How? That's really that's going to be the big difference because it's going to be very significantly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In Ontario, for example, they're moving to regulate all online gaming. They're actually going to say anybody who wants to come and be licensed in our province to offer to Ontario citizens will be free to do so. So it's going to be a very competitive market. They're not limiting entrants. They're not limiting licenses. They're saying whoever wants to come can come. And then you've got other jurisdictions which may do the complete opposite and say, no, we're just going to do it through our lottery corporation. Thanks very much. And that's it. Um, I know Alberta... Gaming and liquor and cannabis uh, issued an RFI request for information back in April, looking for uh, at exploring the potential for looking for private operator sports books to offer retail uh, sports books with mobile options in casino environments mm-hmm. in Alberta, which I think would be a terrific opportunity for the casino yeah. in, in the, to be able to have the product within their building but also give fans a mobile option as well to, to download an app and bet through the app when they're not in a casino. So Alberta's exploring options along that, whether it's how many, we don't know, but in the coming weeks and months, they're going to obviously take steps to, to further implement their plan. So uh, Canadians will see the changes uh, incrementally, I think, over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, because, But it is... Um, it's an interesting and exciting time. Uh, it really does can yeah. can change the offering, especially 
Um, sports betting is very competitive uh, business in the United States where they've let in numbers of eight, ten sports books in different states, and, and they've created lots of economic activity and sponsorships and where franchisees, like, in, you know, whether it's uh, the Calgary St. Peter's or Calgary Flames or, or the Oilers or whoever in Edmonton, each franchise can have the opportunity to benefit from this, too, in, in terms of their partnerships. Uh, broadcasters like TSN and Rogers are are, are uh, actively looking at how they can participate through sports betting content. So there's a lot of activity around sports betting um, that's going to create a real different environment for people, and I think it's exciting uh, for customers. I think it's a terrific time to be a sports fan. Even for something like Sports Select, which has existed uh, for for a long time as a parlay betting system, is the opportunity there even to just kind of flip that and and change the very nature of Sports Select, open it up to single event. And and that's exactly what I think the lottery corporations and, and provincial gaming corps are doing at this point in time is to value what is best. What we've seen in other jurisdictions is is predominantly that. Uh, it's been done in, in, in really in two places. One, it's been done in casino environments, uh, which is in a regulated gaming environment. And two, it's increasingly a mobile uh, feature, so a downloadable app. Uh, that's how it's predominantly done in Europe. That's the growing trend in the United States. They've seen significant uptake in the app ways of betting. The state of New Jersey, when they were the first in the United States to offer sports betting, uh, they offered mobile online options out of the gate. And the first year it was really it was about eighty percent online, twenty percent in the casino. Um, obviously, pandemic and others, but that number is now over ninety percent mobile. Uh, and so they're seeing um, that's where people want to bet. They, you know, whether they're watching the game with friends in a bar at home or in the, even in the sports venue, uh, they're they were able to then uh, take out their phone, download their app, and open their app, and and uh, and place their bets. Now, there are big established uh, companies out there. I mean, certainly, you know, the U.K. has been become very competitive. There's a lot of big sites based out of the U.K. And, and, you know, there may be a lot of Canadians who have been using those sites, you know, doing so kind of essentially illegally, right? And that money's leaving the country. Is, is there a way for Canada to allow some of those those bigger companies in and to, to still, you know, generate revenue that way? Well, and that's exactly the conversation that our associations had with um, Alberta uh, gaming and liquor was around the idea of the gray market in Canada. These offshore online sites have existed. They're still there. They're going to be there tomorrow. They're there today. Um, if you create an opportunity to, to allow some into your market, create the regulated environment, control what's going on, level the playing field so they're done within the rules of everybody's on the same plane, and the economic benefits can stay in the province, um, that's a win-win. Um, because in the absence of having a regulated environment, even if it's a limited license environment, um, those who don't have the licenses will leave. They won't. Right. The, the top-tier operators around the world are licensed in many other jurisdictions. But where there's no licensing and no regulation and nothing to sign up for, that's why they've been free to participate here in Canada. And that's been part of, um, you know, it's it's an anomaly in our law. It's It's not right. And the best way to fix it is to actually begin to start to engage. And not everybody has to do what the province of Ontario is doing and opening it to everybody. Uh, a lot of the U.S. jurisdictions said, we're going to license three, four, seven sports books. That's it. Yeah. We're going to give out that many licenses, no more. Um, 
and you know they've been able to limit their illegal sites significantly because they've created a situation where there's no more gray laws. It's black and white, and that's what we need to do more of here in Canada. We'll see how it all unfolds in the uh, weeks and months ahead here, but uh, very much a significant change. We'll leave it there for now. Paul, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, all the best. That's Paul Burns, President and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association, uh, CanadianGaming.ca. So, yeah, there were a few goes at this in the past. It did pass Parliament once a number of years ago, and then I think either was stalled or defeated in the Senate. Then another attempt uh, was defeated by Parliament this time around, and, and you had all party support for this. Uh, Conservative MP Kevin Waugh from Saskatchewan sponsored the bill in the House. Uh, David Wells sponsored in the Senate. You had Brian Massey, uh, New Democrat MP for Windsor West, and uh, the late Gord Brown from uh, Leeds, uh, Grenville in Ontario. So, yeah, a lot of different input on this, and that made a big difference. But I think, as Paul said, ultimately the fact that the sports leagues went from being dead set against this to now fully embracing it, and that that was what what changed the the landscape entirely. And we'll see how this looks in practice now. So it's uh, now past it's out of the criminal code how the provinces choose to regulate this that's going to be uh, the interesting side now going forward welcome back rob breckenridge with you here on the chorus radio network so we may be heading to a possible fall election the writing seems very much on the wall which does kind of cast a shadow over some of these these next conversations here you know, first of all, we've got a weird situation where we don't have a governor general and uh, that role, those duties are being filled by the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, which is, is there as, as sort of a temporary kind of situation. But uh, the government's definitely taking its, its sweet time in finding a new governor general. So we've got the chief justice of the Supreme Court giving royal assent to legislation that he may one day have to deal with as a Supreme Court justice, to say nothing of, you know, all of the, the issues that come along with a possible election call and minority government. With regard to talk of new hate speech legislation, now it sounds as though something's coming later on today, as a matter of fact. Uh, one reporter tweeting earlier that there is uh, going to be a press conference, 6.30 Ottawa time, which is very unusual. Uh, to brief journalists on this new online hate law. Introducing legislation now does seem odd. I mean, we're going to break for summer, and in all likelihood, Parliament's not going to resume in fall. Instead, we'll, we'll go to an election. So maybe this is all political. But obviously, the government's going to be making the case that we need new hate legislation. There are hate crimes that exist in the Criminal Code of Canada. So w where's the gap? From what we're hearing, this may be actually bringing back uh, a section of Canada's Human Rights Act that was eliminated in 2014, uh, the infamous Section 13, which prohibited online communications which were likely to expose a person or persons to hatred or contempt, which seemed overly broad and uh, therefore raised all kinds of free speech concerns. Those concerns, I think, are, are still uh, very valid. So joining us to talk more about, you know, the potential implications uh, of this kind of legislation and to also touch on this uh, odd situation we're still stuck with concerning the governor general or lack thereof. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Joanna Barron, executive director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. The CCF.ca is their website. Joanna, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. 
So, I mean, at this point, we, we don't know what the liberals are proposing. We've heard a lot of talk about something similar to that notorious Section 13 maybe coming back. But what, what are your thoughts, your concerns at this point? Well, there are many things. So what we've heard through stakeholder rumors and things like that is that the legislation would actually create three new administrative bodies. So a social media regulator, an appeal board, and a tribunal. So there's just the question of sort of general state expansion. And then, of course, in addition to the Section 13, um, which, as you noted, aptly seems duplicative because we already have, you know, hate speech prohibitions in the criminal code. This would seem to widen that. Um, But even more worryingly or equally worryingly, I would say, Um, It's rumored that the Liberals are going to be proposing a 24-hour takedown requirement on platforms. So um, if a post comes up that is hate speech or could be construed as hate speech, Facebook or or Twitter must take it down within 24 hours or be slapped with a hefty fine. And we've seen um, countries in the EU, Germany, for example, has gone down this route. And they've also required platforms to send the offending speech to the equivalent of Germany's FBI or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is that these platforms are going to err on the side of caution, right? They're going to say, well, we better take this down. So there has been a really pronounced chilling effect. Well, and you mentioned the the provisions of the Criminal Code of Canada. So not only you know do we have existing laws that cover hate speech, but th- there's a lot of protection built in when we're talking about criminal code charges in terms of you know proving intent and and truth as a defense. And you know, Attorney General has to sign off on these charges. So there's some protections built in. It it didn't really exist, and that was one of the concerns around Section 13. And it, it doesn't sound as though any of that's going to exist in in some of these other provisions the Liberals are are looking at. So, what do you see as the potential free speech implications of all of this? Yeah, so I think certainly there's going to be a chilling effect, as you mentioned, because this cre- would create a regulatory offense, and a lot of the responsibility is effectively being punted to the platforms themselves, albeit, as I mentioned, there's going to be these new bureaucratic uh, administrative bodies who are not usually specialized. They're usually political appointees that are going to be tasked with being the sort of the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We don't have the same built-in protections. And not only do we not, do we already have hate speech provisions in the criminal code, there is also other provisions like, you know, counseling suicide, yeah. um, other provisions that you think would, would cover really the situations, you know, the situations where uh, teenagers bullying each other and, you know, the horrible things like that we've seen. Well, we already do have protection, ample protection against that. Um, so I think it's really, uh, like I said, we've said about Bill C-10, which, of course, has now been punted to the Senate and may die if an election is called. It is a solution in search of a problem. Well, and speaking of C-10, and this is an actual quote from Heritage Minister Stephen Gilbeau, who told a, a, um, his appearance at the Banff World Media Festival. He said, now this is going to be controversial. Speaking of this new hate speech legislation, people think that C-10 was controversial. Wait till we table this legislation. So that those are his words. I don't know what to make of that, but clearly they're they're spoiling for a fight. Yeah. Well, with C10, 
you had to, in order to see, I think C10 is a huge problem. But in order to understand why it's a problem, you need to look into what discoverability means. And, you know, there's some verbiage. Basically, what they're proposing is the CRTC to regulate your YouTube feed or whatever. But it's not as intuitive to see why it's a direct speech violation. Here, it's much more blatant. It's much more, okay, Facebook, we're, we're going to fine you $2,000 if you don't, you know, set up your algorithms and take these things down. We're going to build out these brand new regulators as opposed to just, you know, turning an existing regulator, the CRTC, onto things. Um, so I think, I think he's, he's right that, um, that things are getting worse if they're about to get better. They're getting worse currently. Now, maybe this is more of a, a political question, and we, we brought you on for legal analysis, not necessarily political, but, you know, I mean, the House is, uh, I believe, rising today or, or this week. We're going into the summer break, and in all likelihood, it sounds like we're going to get a fall election campaign. I mean, does this all seem political, and is that any kind of consolation if we're not actually going to ever see this legislation or not anytime soon? Yeah, I, I do actually think, um, I, I do, well, I do think that the current liberals are very anti-technology and anti-internet. I think this is more cynical. I think that they are doing this now because they actually would like to put it forward as a wedge issue um, in the coming election, because there certainly are demographics in this country that um, are very anti-speech. I'm not going to specify more, but it Mm -hmm. certainly is an impulse that um, the liberals can pander to, unfortunately. Now, meanwhile, and it's interesting, you get a piece up today at the hub.ca on, on an interesting issue that, that is relevant here, because if the liberals want to, to have an election, I guess they're going to have to convince the governor general that one is necessary. We don't have a governor general <laughs> at the moment. We've got the chief justice, you know, fulfilling some of those duties. And that raises a lot of uh, awkward uh, situations. But what, what are your main concerns about this current situation? Yeah, I, I think it actually is um, calls into question some of the legitimacy of our institutions currently, because formally the power of the judicial, executive, and legislative branches ultimately rest in one person. Certainly the very serious, flagrant situation would be if the election resulted in a hung parliament, then the governor general actually has to be the one to choose a prime minister. Um, but even more simply, for example, yesterday, Chief Justice Vagnau uh, appointed several senators. Those senators presumably will pass laws or give assent to laws, and then the chief justice will have to rule on their constitutionality. Uh, so it's it's a very awkward um, and untenable situation. I'm not sure why the government hasn't made more of a priority of of finding a replacement for uh, Ms. Payette. Well, I mean, I can understand, you know, the need to get it right this time. I mean, obviously that, that appointment turned into a bit of a mess, but th- this is a really awkward position to put not just the chief justice in, but I, I think to put the country in. Uh, I don't know. I mean, is, is there a way around this, do you think? Well, uh, I suppose the way around it would be, that, so currently the reason that the chief, that the acting governor general is the chief justice is because of a letters patent from King Edward VI, I believe. So it's a sort of arcane practice. I suppose yeah. that we could just reimagine that and say, okay, if there's no acting governor general, then we just don't have a direct representation of the Queen in Canada. Or, you know, the Chief Justice seems a fairly arbitrary person, um, but I'm not sure who would be who would be a better option. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, we we could just go to the Queen, I suppose, but yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what would be an ideal situation. Well, she, I, she yeah. has made it clear she's not interested <laughs> in getting involved. So actually, First Nations are some of the groups that right. are the most concerned about this because they have treaties directly with the Queen, and they've written to, um, they've written to the monarchy, and uh, her. Her Majesty's executive assistant wrote back promptly and said, thank you, but this is a matter for the Canadian government. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, I admit it does raise some serious uh, questions about impartiality in, in future cases and just some of this this legal uncertainty. So as mentioned, the hub.ca, more from you uh, on this issue and much more is mentioned as well at the CCF.ca. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Uh, Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So, yeah, it's not a situation I suspect many Canadians are lying awake at night thinking about. Like, my God, we've got this Chief Justice, and now he he might be giving royal assent to laws that he might have to one day rule on. This is so awkward. But it is a legitimate concern. We we never really had this kind of a situation. Typically, you know, you have a governor general and, okay, this person's time is ending and here's who's going to be the next governor general and everything just continues on smoothly. Or if a governor general, you know, were to be ill or pass away, it it wouldn't be a a lengthy situation typically. Now we're we're stuck in it. And if we're going to have a fall election, it's going to be a lot longer until we do get a governor general here. So, yeah, we've got the chief justice of the Supreme Court who might be awkwardly thrown into this whole situation in terms of the, the liberals trying to engineer a fall election. The government hasn't fallen. I know Justin Trudeau has tried to lay the groundwork here by, you know, throwing in every now and then, oh, you know, the opposition parties are really kind of obstructing our agenda. So that that makes for a bit of a messy situation. We'll see how that all unfolds. Meanwhile, we'll find out later today, and I suppose we'll we'll have some follow-up tomorrow on this whole situation with new uh, hate speech legislation. How far is the government prepared to go here? Why is Stephen Gilbo teasing it that way? Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you thought C-10 was a dumpster fire, well, not his words, those are mine. Uh, Wait till you see this. So we'll see what they come up with. But like Joanna said, I mean, it it just seems transparently political. Why are you introducing new legislation now when the House isn't even sitting? We're going into the summer. Now, if you want to campaign on this, well, then, yeah, okay, it makes sense. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.